The scripture reading today is from Genesis chapter 16, verses 1 through 16. You can find it printed on page 9 of your worship folder. Now Sarah, Abram's wife, bore him no children. She had an Egyptian slave girl whose name was Hagar. And Sarah said to Abram, You see that the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my slave girl. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her slave girl, and gave her to her husband Abram as a wife. He went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my slave girl to your embrace, and when she saw that she conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, your slave girl is in your power to do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she ran away from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to shore. And he said, Hagar, slave girl of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm running away from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will so greatly multiply your offspring that they cannot be counted for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, now you have conceived and shall bear a son. You shall call him Ishmael for the Lord has given heed to your affliction. He shall be a wild ass of a man with his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall live at odds with all his kin. So she named the Lord who spoke to her, you are Elroy. For she said, have I really seen God and remained alive after seeing him? Therefore the well was called Beir Lahairoi. It lies between Kadesh and Byred. Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram named his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. The word of the Lord. Take a moment now for silent reflection. Gracious God, God revealed to us as divine parent, father, mother, God revealed to us as the God who provides. God revealed to us as the God of heaven. God revealed to us in the person and work of Jesus. God, help us today to say like Hagar that you see us, the God who sees. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I was a 12-year-old. I was on the Tangerine League All-Star team in Lakeland, Florida. I was expected to hit a home run each time I played in a game. Not untrue. Peaked out early. Was in the midst of a pretty big slump. People were angry with me. I was not producing. It's always terrible when we treat people as something that has to produce. But I was not producing, and I was really down on myself. And, you know, it was one of those things where every time I went up to bat now, the ball just, I, it, it looked like it was the size of a, an aspirin. Impossible to hit. 
and we're playing against the Grapefruit League All-Stars, and Donald Thompson was the biggest kids there, only one bigger than me, really, at 12 years old in Lakeland. And he threw a pretty mean fastball. And I'm standing in at the plate, and I'm shaking, and I know I'm going to strike out again, even though I'm supposed to be the best hitter on the team. And I remember it like yesterday, my dad's voice from the stands. Dad never yelled at games. He was not like you are at soccer games, parents. <laughs> Much better behaved. And dad yelled out, Fred, you can do it. I hit the next pitch. This table is too close to me. This is going to be a problem today. I hit the next pitch so far that it landed on another baseball field beyond Diamond 4 on the pitcher's mound. It just so happened that the bases were loaded. Thank you very much for coming. I'll see you later. <laughs> Go out on top. Remember the Seinfeld? Yeah. Should have just gone. I should have just said at the end of that, I should have jogged the bases and said, all right, I'm out. I was, at that moment, I was seen. I was seen as Jack's son, Fred. I was known. I knew why he was saying it. He knew how I felt in that moment. He knew exactly what I needed to hear. And it was enormously powerful. And it's what everybody in this room wants as well. To be seen. To be known. One of the greatest compliments I could ever receive as a preacher is for someone to come up to me afterwards and say, I just want you to know I felt seen today. What a privilege to help you feel seen and known. Every children want it. What do children do when they can start to talk and they can start to tell you they discover something? Like, look, look, look. It's like a continuous thing of look. Look, Mom. Look, Dad. Look, look, look. And we live right now in this generation of notification where we are constantly saying, here's this thing I did. Like it. And if we don't get likes, we're like, what? I actually had a congregant come to me once and say, I notice you're not liking my posts anymore. <laughs> we didn't teach this in seminary. But behind, I mean, that's petty sounding, right? But behind, you know what's behind that? I want to be seen. I want to be known. And in this story, we have someone naming God as the one who sees. But to do justice to her, we are going to have to do some background work. And I want you to know it's sorted. As sorted as Genesis 16 is, wait till you see Genesis 12, 13, 14, and 15. Because in order to do justice to Hagar, we have to do a flyby to do what I would call the sorted details. So here's the sorted backstory in Genesis 12, 13, 14, 15. What we have going on, and it's sorted. It involves incest. It involves sexual slavery and violence and abuse. Let's put it this way. If Abraham and Sarah had sent their saliva off to Ancestry.com, they would have very surprising results coming back. With not a lot of branches in the tree, honestly. Stephen Gunlock asked me for questions to give to our community groups this week to talk about and to have to do the sermon. And I sent him the last one. It's kind of a tongue-in-cheek, but I said, here... Tell him to ask this, Abraham and Sarah were brother and sister. Discuss. <laughs> they share the same father. We don't learn about that until Genesis 20. Genesis 20. 
Abraham's brother Nahor, Abraham had two brothers, Nahor and Haran. And Haran, when his wife died, decided to marry someone, so he married his brother's daughter. Hello. And this just goes on and on here. Abraham and Sarah are likely the product of incest in such a family system. And so when God calls Abraham to get out, I want you to notice that you don't have to, maybe not have a Bible with you, but in Genesis 12, it's not just say, hey, get out of your country. It's get out of your father's house. Yeah. The literal translation, get you gone from your country, kindred, and your father's house. House And based on Abraham's later behavior, when he has his son marry a relative, we don't know if Abraham really got a lot of this stuff flushed out of his family system. In fact, there's all sorts of woundedness that takes place. And so, yeah, there's a massive promise given to Abraham. We're going to get to that. But don't miss these details. These people are victims of patriarchy. They're victims of horrible decisions being made to and for and about them. And they're going to make horrible decisions as well as we continue to go on and tell the story. Just like many of our horrible decisions come out of these same horrible things that have been visited upon us. that We did not necessarily ask for. The trite but very true phrase, hurt people, hurt people, applies. So Abraham and Sarah get out. There's a famine in Egypt, so they had to, excuse me, there's a famine where they are, so they head to Egypt, where there's lots of prosperity. And that's when Sarah's beauty, as it often is in misogynistic, patriarchal cultures, Sarah's beauty is a liability, especially to Abraham. Because the Pharaoh takes note through his associates of the beauty of Sarah. And if Abraham is married to Sarah, there's a way to deal with Abraham. We'll just get him out. But if Sarah, but if Sarah is Abraham's sister, which, by the way, is true, um, there's a different reality. And so when Pharaoh asks, it's not that Abraham actually lies. He just kind of doesn't tell everything. So, no, this is my sister. Abraham feared death more than Abraham cared about protecting Sarah. So Sarah's brother-husband sold her to a man that he knew would use her for sex. That's the blunt truth. A hip-hop translation of this would be that she was pimped out. So I want you to see first Sarah as a survival of sexual violence and sexual abuse and her partner as complicit in that. This is one of the reasons, you all, that I love the Bible. And the reasons I believe it, the reason I think it is inspired, actually, but maybe not in the way of like golden plates falling out and all those kinds of crazy ways of thinking about the Bible, but because it's real talk. It tells the truth. It doesn't hide things. And so what happens is, is at some point, Pharaoh figures all this out and freaks out. And instead of killing Abraham, he decides to give Abraham a bunch of stuff and say, just get out of here. Sarah's body made Abraham a very wealthy man. And so they leave Egypt and they are loaded. And in Genesis 13, 14, 15, a lot goes down. Part of which is God tells Abraham, I am going to be a God to you and to all your children. Your descendants are just going to be scattered all over the place. You are going to have so many children, children, rich in children. Children are going to be everywhere. There are going to be so much children. 
And now we're ready to read Genesis 16, 1. What's the first thing you read there out of the gate? Sarah had no children. Sarah had no children. There's the problem. And then, this, then it goes on to say, but she had a slave. Because when Pharaoh made Abraham loaded, he loaded him up with cattle and donkeys and oxen and all this money, etc., etc., as well as, text tells us, male and female slaves. And so she has a slave. Female in a patriarchal culture, Egyptian, if ethnically inferior in the culture in which she's a part. It's a slave, just a, a, an object to be used. And so Sarah, as, as often the case, goes from victim to perpetrator. Will Gaffney, in her womanist um, midrash, says that Sarah, too, is a product of patriarchy, and women can and do subjugate other women and sometimes men under patriarchy's dominion. Sarah employs the lessons she learned in her father's house against Haggai and to some degree against Abraham. Sarah will seize the body of a girl she considers her property and subject her to a physical and sexual violence and a forced pregnancy while turning the tables on the husband who sold her for sheep, camels, donkeys, and human chattel. And later, her abuse of Hagar will be so violent and so oppressive that it is described with the same word that Exodus uses to describe the Egyptian oppression and affliction of the Israelites, a word that includes rape as one of its primary meanings. So this is the kind of decision-making. This, I have to take matters into my own hands that is born in desperation that is born in saying, I know what I must have. And you know, when we get into that space, we will always employ means that we think are necessary that certainly are not disconnected from all the pain that has been inflicted on us throughout our lifetime. Because we have not transformed that pain, we therefore transmit it on to others. So Hagar, which is not her real name, by the way, like slaves of every time and place, the names are often lost. Hagar means foreigner, stranger. Imagine Hagar. She's taken out of Egypt. Your name now is foreigner. Your name is stranger. And it's not even a feminine name. It's a male name in the language, but her female body will be colonized to gestate the hopes of Abraham and Sarah. And you know what? It works. The way things work when the powerful oppress those with less power. A child is born. And Sarah rejects this child, rejects Hagar, and then blames Abraham for her idea. Talk about gaslighting. And Hagar must have got a text from one of my kids. Because I learned so much from all my children. One of them is the text that says, Dad, I've got a GTFO. Hagar must have gotten that text because she got out 
And getting out sometimes, I know, is our only option. Okay. Take a breath, everybody. In scene one, who here feels like they need a bath? I mean, quick application. Quick application. Taking matters into our own hands. Now, look, you have these moments, right, when you've done this. I've done this. And sometimes I, I have all nothing but compassion about this because sometimes it feels you're doing the best you can with what you know to do, and I get that. And often it's done in the midst of despair and desperation, a demand for resolution. And often it's done when you're not really willing and able to sit longer with discomfort, with pain, with anxiety, with what people call a liminal space. Is it not true that your unwillingness to sit in those liminal spaces have led to some of the most horrible decisions that you've made in your life? I'll just say it has for me. Going forward, what might it look like for you to make decisions out of rest? Okay, scene two, the intervention. Hagar's out. She has been kind of tossed away. She has damaged goods to the culture around her. She's alone. And then we have this God figure in verse 8 come in and says this, Where have you been and where are you going? Such powerful questions. And before saying those questions, the messenger of God says, Hagar, slave girl of Sarai. God knows her pain, knows her story. God is not looking for new information. God is reaching out in relationship. And the first thing that God says to her, I will tell you right now, is really problematic. Go back to Sarah and submit to her. Nope. No, would have been my response. What you may hear in that is, go back to your abuser. You will never be told that by a pastor of this church or by our counseling center. I assure you of that. So that's a hard thing. I wrestled with that this week. Maybe there's no way for a pregnant woman to survive in the wilderness. And God does make promises to her. You will be safe. You will have children. You will have descendants. You will have this and this. If I'm Hagar, I might be going, yeah, that sounds a lot like the promise you gave Abraham. And they still don't have kids. And look at me now. Wouldn't blame Hagar for saying, hard pass. But something has happened here. And the something is, Hagar feels deeply seen and known, and it must have been enough for her against all of the odds to trust God in that moment. It must have been enough. So, she is the first person in all of the Bible to name God. Before 
Abraham names God Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. Before David names God El Shaddai, the God of heaven and earth, the God of Almighty. We have Hagar, a female Egyptian slave, as the first person to name God. And what she names God, I would say, is far more psychodynamically important than provider or Almighty. It is the God who sees. The God who sees me. The God who sees you. And that is incredibly powerful. How powerful? Let me give you an illustration of how powerful. In 2010, there was an artist named Marina Abramovich, a performance artist. And she went up to the sixth floor of the Museum of Modern Art, and for three months, seven days a week, for six hours, she sat in a chair in a lighted square in this room. And over 1,500 people came to this art exhibit, which was her sitting in a chair opposite another chair. And people were invited to come and sit as she looked into their eyes. We're going to look at some pictures right now from a photographer who took pictures of people who were sitting across from her. And you're going to see on there the minute mark, how long they had been sitting there when the picture was taken. Daniel. Powerful. What caused those reactions? the power and the mystery of the impact of being seen, of being known. And the beauty of the gospel is that God, not a stranger, sees you knows you. I try to say it almost every Sunday when I preach. Do you, know, do you recognize that in my prayer? Didn't do it today because I was going to preach on it. Help us to believe. Some of you have been coming for a long time, already know, can fill out the blank. Help us to believe that you know us, you see us in all of our brokenness and all of our, our beauty and all of our glory and all of our fragmentation and all of who we are. Help us to believe you see all of that. Because if you begin to believe that God sees you like Hagar, you will, maybe against all the odds, trust God with your life. Finally, someone who sees me. Let me tell you, to the single mom or dad struggling to make it on your own, to the person with a serious illness that you haven't told anyone about, to the person who doesn't know how they're going to be able to make it financially this month, to the person who is married but incredibly lonely, to the person who didn't plan on being single this long, to the person who's been holding a secret that has negatively impacted you for years, to the person who's here longing for children, to the person who's been rejected, to the person riddled with shame, to the person battling addiction, to the person who is brown or black-skinned in a world designed for whiteness. God sees you. 
God sees you. And being seen heals. You know what's going on at City Hope? You think what's happening is that people are being fed or having their feet washed or getting this address or that need need addressed. You know what's really going on? People are being seen. So, the invitation, therefore, is to allow yourself to be seen so you can see others. Friendship with God is that deep and that radical. It is to be radically seen and known to transform you into a person who instead of having only transactional relationships with others, you began to have transformative relationships with others because you are now, like Jesus, looking to see people. And this is what Jesus did in all of the stories. Sometimes I talk with people and they're like, you know what, I'm starting to read this Bible you're so crazy about and this story about Jesus, but where was he for 30 years? I mean, that's pretty weird. I mean, if there's some politician that had 30 years of their life that's not in there and you want me to vote for him, I'm going to go, ah, no, we need to go get receipts from that time frame. But apparently what Jesus was doing was placing himself in such proximity to people from every conceivable background and place in life that he, when he was 30, was able to walk in to all sorts of just scenarios that were just loaded with emotion and, and, and story and, and pain and sadness, and people felt seen. And as Jesus' followers, this is what we should do as well. Jesus saw everybody, especially those overlooked, the outcasts, the marginalized, immigrants, refugees, traumatized, the discarded, the ostracized, but also the disciples sitting next to him. You see, there's the deal. We're all in about, oh yeah, I got to see people that are over there. I got to see people in need. Count me, Fred, sign me up. I will volunteer. But will you volunteer to see finally, maybe, your spouse or your child or your next-door neighbor, or that annoying uncle or aunt, or that person who posts things that you hate on Facebook? Will you see those people that are close to you? Will you do that kind of work? And how do we go about it? Well, there's a couple of questions in this story that are a good way to start. Where have you come from? Where are you going? Here's what I want you to remember, this little phrase. I think Jesus did this all the time. He had, and both of them are very important, he had a compassionate, not judgmental, a compassionate curiosity. What would it mean for you to have compassionate curiosity with the people in your life? Will you risk it? And I'm going to go one step further, and this may freak you out a little bit, but I'm going to t- say it anyway. Apparently, it hasn't stopped me in the past. I'm going to tell you the one step further is this. And by the way, this is not my idea. 
This is John Calvin's idea. Wow. Some of you are now getting up and walking out. Don't agree with anything Calvin said, but he did say this 500 years ago. You ready for this? You can't really know God unless you know yourself. You can't know yourself unless you know God. Isn't that fascinating? My question is, are you seen by yourself? Because I can tell you, for some of you, your own self terrifies you. But when you find yourself, you know what you will find? You will find God. You will find compassion. This past week, this is going to freak you out, this part, so be ready. Ready? This past week, I was at this very intensive retreat, and so we did tons of these grounding exercises. And one of them was called, and, and, and they, these exercises were these meditative, informed exercises. So we'd sit, we'd get our feet in the ground, we'd place our hands up, close our eyes, we'd sit in silence for a couple minutes. And then we'd have kind of a guided journey. And the person leading us, one of these was called compassionate friend. And the leader said, imagine whoever it is in your life, your compassionate friend comes alongside you. And so immediately, I had my wife, Torelli, in my mind's eyes. I sat there in silence. But she, and this is God's work, and you can just hold on to this and call it very interesting if you need to. She receded. And seven-year-old Fred stepped in. And I talked with seven-year-old Fred. Fred, who was such a part of an anxious, violent family system. Seven-year-old Fred with all the slammed doors and the fist going through a door and the afraid of everything and who was molested at five and six years old, seven-year-old Fred. And in this moment with my eyes closed, seven-year-old Fred says to me, it's going to be all right. It's going to be okay. We skipped stones on a river. And as the time was ending, I said, you have to give me something. And seven-year-old Fred in this meditative, I don't know, trance I'm in, pulls out a rabbit's foot, my rabbit's foot, that I haven't seen in 50 years. And then the person leading the guided retreat said, whoever this compassionate friend is, recognize that it's you. Torelli, my wife, can be very compassionate with me. God knows she needs to be. But who can be more compassionate than seven-year-old Fred to 56-year-old Fred? And in that moment, to see God in the midst of all of it. Because as Calvin, blame him, said, 
you begin to really know and see yourself, you will see that God has been there all along, waiting. Waiting. Feeling invisible? God sees you. Friendship with God is this radical. God sees you entirely. God loves you fiercely. No more hiding. No need to hide. And everybody says, Amen. Let us pray. Gracious God, today, heavy as this text is, this text that has been called rightly a text of terror, help us to mine through all the oppression that's taking place in it to get a word from you today that says that you see us and you know us. And you invite us into that kind of radical friendship. Maybe the first step for some of us is to finally do that work to know ourselves. Maybe the first step is to go to someone today and say, I want to know you better out of compassionate curiosity instead of judgmental. Judgmental assuming of knowing what people are and do and have and are about. Help us to see in this community, all of us, as people with stories. Help us to experience your love through our love for one another, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.